Welcome to the Hello and welcome and action. There's a lot of inconsistency in this world. And I'm not just talking about our behaviors, diets, relationships, or beliefs. I'm talking about something else entirely. The inconsistency of language. So why can't we make our lives easier? Why can't we all just settle on one language? Because let's face it, language learning is one hell of a task that requires hours of practice constant maintenance and incredible patience. Joining us on today's episode is the creator and researcher behind the constructed languages in several Hollywood movies, Star Trek, Avatar, Man of Steel, and Power Rangers. I'm Dr. Christine Schreier, a linguistic anthropologist from UBC's Okanagan campus. She'll be answering some of our questions regarding this topic and will provide greater insight into the possibilities of what it's like to have a universal language. Welcome to Back of a Napkin, a podcast that spreads curiosity and inquisitive thinking. We're your co-hosts, Rebecca and Bonnie, and on each episode, we ask a new question. When it comes to video games and movies involving fictional characters, nothing draws an audience more than creating a constructed language. And that's exactly what Dr. Shire does. From teaching actors like Brian Cranston and Elizabeth Banks how to speak Eltarian in Power Rangers, she is a professional when it comes to language creation. I am a linguistic anthropologist, which means I was originally interested in anthropology, which is the study of all people at all times and in all places. And we have four parts to anthropology. What I do is called linguistic anthropology. We have cultural anthropology, biological or physical anthropology, and archaeology. So mine looks at how language and culture are connected. And once I started taking anthropology classes myself as a student, I really got interested in that side of things. And I also learned languages a lot when I was a kid, Not, I guess in school. So being Canadian, we all learned French. Um, I was exposed to American Sign Language when I was seven. Uh, I took Spanish in high school as well. And then in my first years of university, I took Latin and Cree. So I just really love learning languages and that ties to this idea of culture and language being connected. So when we talk about this connection between culture and language, we can't help but also talk about identity. People's identities are very closely attached to their languages they speak. So it's it's who we are. It's It identifies us as Canadians. We all probably have, if we're all Canadian to some extent, um, maybe we have these Canadianisms or you'll have different words that in English that identify you as being British versus Australian versus whatever. So there's always your identity tied to your language and shows who you are. So how exactly do you go about doing that? We wanted to know if Dr. Schreier was still offering courses at UBC's Okanagan campus. I do every once in a while. Um, so I teach in the First Nations and Endangered Languages program. And sometimes the course is shared between campuses. And we have at UBC Okanagan, we have a brand new 
Bachelor of Insilkjin fluency, which is the Okanagan people's language. Um, so they're the Silks people and Insilkjin is their language. And it will start in 2021. And a lot of the courses are cross-listed between the campuses. So we will be teaching more of those um, courses. So yeah, so I've taught my living languages course here ties to a, an FNEL course at UBC Vancouver. In order to create a language that works for everyone, some great examples can be found in a work done in Hollywood. Behind the cameras and red carpets is a growing community of people who create languages either for fun or as their job. But what does the process of constructing a language look like? We wanted to know how many languages Dr. Shire had worked on so far in her career. Um, so I've done three. The first one was Man of Steel, and that's what most people know me for. And that's the Kryptonian language, Superman's language. And that one, because Superman has been around for 70-some years, it's probably more than that by this point, uh, there was a lot of words that were developed for Superman already. Like, Superman's name is Kal-El. I don't know how big a Superman fans you are. Um, his father's name is Jor-El. It's Krypton is the name of the planet. There's um, Z uh, Zod and Rao, and there's all these other names that have appeared. So what I did for that one was to take everything that already existed and then made it into a systematic... Um, use of language. So all of the sounds that existed, and then how they put the sounds together. And then I took that and made new words. And so, and then the grammatical structure. So in that language is subject, object, verb. So if we say, I saw him in English, it would be I, him, saw in Kryptonian. And I did that based on the story, because, um, spoiler alert, Krypton explodes. And so, uh, and they were being very selfish. So I put subject first, because the selfish subject was I a lot of the time. And then the objects, because they had these long history with their objects. Um, the world building done for that film was done by Alex McDowell, who's a production designer. And he had all these intricate layers to it that you never even see on screen. So there was writing on everything anyone owned on Krypton. So they were so attached to their objects. So that's why objects came second. And then actions, they were being kind of inactive. And that's why their world exploded. So I use those kinds of story details to develop the grammatical system. And then I would just be given, uh, for that one, I worked with the art department because literally they were writing it on everything. So it was more art. And then they got excited about it and they tried to speak the language um, for a few scenes, but it didn't make it into the final cut of the film. And so, yeah, so I worked with a graphic designer who developed a writing system, which is not an alphabet. It's called, it's kind of like, if you know Japanese at all, it's the, the hiragana katakana system. So it's a consonant vowel combination and they flip depending on what vowels being used. So if it's E, it's that way. If it's A, uh, it's flipped underneath. And I know I'm using my hands to show you things, but on a podcast, you're not going to see that. But anyway, they flip upside down. We see that languages are very versatile and fluid in the methods that they're constructed. But what are some other ways or purposes that languages are used for? Another really interesting one is Susan... Uh, Suzanne Elgin, who made um, a language called Ladan for a novel she wrote, and it was a very feminist language. So it was things all about menstrual cycles and how women feel and about giving birth. And, and that was a really interesting one, too. So like making really explicit languages in other ways are always fun. Currently, Dr. Shire teaches a course at UBC in which students learn about Klingon, the language in Star Trek. We wanted to know what were some things that drew her to teach this particular language instead of other films. 
Well, I love Star Trek because it's very anthropological. We learned about so many different cultures. Um, I I think I'm probably a bigger Star Trek than Star Wars fan. I know everyone has their ones they prefer. Um, And they do a really good job, Star Trek, of actually making languages and showcasing cultures where they have not really made languages for Star Wars. They make things that sound like languages. Um, So that's a big critique. Yeah, yeah. And for those that haven't watched any Star Wars or Star Trek movies, what does Klingon sound like? Oh, I mean, I know only the basic. Klingon, I know very little. Um, One of the people, so have you been watching Klingon Discovery? Have you seen that one? Or Star Trek Discovery? Sorry, it's called Star Trek Discovery. So it's a newer version that focuses on the Klingons. And there is actually a Canadian. You should get her on your show if you're interested. Her name is Robin Stewart, and she does live in the Vancouver area. Um... She was on a panel that we had talking about, I have a documentary film called Conlanging, The Art of Crafting Tongues, and we screened it in Vancouver, and she was on a panel with us with David Peterson. Um, So she's the one who's been translating all that Klingon, and so I am not, I could tell you more from other languages. The only one I really know is Kaplach, which everybody knows, because Big Bang Theory and everything else, but yeah, I'm not, I don't know that much Klingon, sorry. The importance of communication is often overlooked, and in this day and age, especially with apps like Google Translate or Microsoft Translator, our phones do all the hard work for us. So should we be spending our time learning new languages, or is it all a waste of time? We wanted to know whether languages are still important to learn. I think they are. So many people want to learn languages they connect to. So if you read a book about a place, you might want to learn that language. If you are a fan of a TV show like The 100 or The 100, then you would learn Trigadesling or whatever it is. So I feel like people are going to be interested in languages um, for the most part. The people who were going to be anyway, there are always people who are more number people than language people. Um, although the two mix too. So yeah, I think I think it will continue. So if language learning is still so important, is there a trick to learning new languages? I find it to be very contextually based. So I find it easier to remember words for the Papua New Guinea language I work with when I'm in Papua New Guinea. So finding ways to develop the context of where you learned it and um, how you want to use it again. Like if you set up a group of friends who all were in Spain with you and you're speaking Spanish, right? So then that's the context kind of replicating itself. So I remember more Papua New Guinea words um, when I'm with the people who were in Papua New Guinea with me. And that seems to be the advice for most linguists. To learn a language properly, complete immersion is your safest bet to achieving fluency. But what about when we can't travel? Will language learning apps provide us with that similar level of fluency? Yeah, I mean, apps are good too. It depends on the app um, and if it gives you the chance to practice. So a lot of them are kind of static, right? It's just repeating words. So if you're, um, and speaking is such an, an issue for people. Um, like you can remember, I'm my French is really good at reading and writing, but speaking French, I would be atrocious at at this point. Um, and having those uh, ability to speak into the app are good. There are some constructed languages like Dothraki from Game of Thrones, which is in Duolingo. Um, and I think Valerian, the other Game of Thrones one, might be in there because David Peterson, their creator, who is a friend of mine, um, has partnered with them to make various things. So what Dr. Schreier is telling us is that it might be possible for languages like Navi from Avatar or Klingon from Star Trek to make their debut on Duolingo. 
and superfans around the world would take language learning to a whole new level. But what is the difference between these fan languages and the ones that already exist? What is a constructed language and what is a natural one? So a constructed language is a language that's consciously developed purposefully, uh, usually by one person, but sometimes a group of people. Where a natural language is something that has evolved from their origins of all languages. So uh, different language families evolve. So we have the Romance language family, and then we get Spanish and Portuguese and Romanian and uh, French that all develop out of that because speakers kind of move to new places and then they start speaking in different ways or different cultural groups will develop. So it's a natural progression of words changing rather than someone saying, we're going to make this word and it's going to mean this, right? So the purposeful creation of a language. With the ongoing creation of new languages for Hollywood or novels comes another scary reality, the loss of old ones. Even with the sheer number of people and technology we have now, how is it still possible for languages to become endangered or extinct? What can we do to preserve all of the tradition and history associated with the languages? There was an interesting case. Okay, so ones that have died out, there was an I, a British island called the Isle of Manx, and it's kind of in it's in between Britain and um, France. And so, or Ireland, I can't remember where that one is. There's a f- Isle of Manx anyway. And there was the last speaker died, the last fluent speaker of that language died in 1974. And the UN and UNESCO declared it extinct. And then, but it wasn't. There were people who were second language learners of that language. And they developed an immersion preschool and then an immersion school. And then the children in that school wrote to the UN and said, if my language is extinct, what am I writing to you in? I'm writing to you in this language you've declared extinct. And so there's always somebody who has, or not always, there are others that people have actually, the language has gone extinct. Um, or there's the last speaker has died. Uh, a really interesting case is one from Alaska called Iak. There was the last speaker also died, I think in 1999. Her name was Marie Smith. And everybody, it was an article in, I think, The Economist, like lamenting the loss of Iak. And there had been linguists working on the language with her for many years at that point, a, a man named Michael Krauss. And he had put these documentation things up online. And a French teenager found them. And he was a burgeoning polyglot, and he started learning them and became quite good at the language. So when she died about five years later, they discovered him because uh, he wrote to Michael Krauss, and they br- have now brought him to Alaska to teach people their language. So it's really cool. So there are these examples. Um, to stop a language from dying is to give it, to give it power and to give it prestige. So putting it in an education system, making it an official language, allowing people to vote in it, um, street signs, anything you can do to promote the use of the language are all things that will help it from dying. This got the both of us wondering, is there actually a benefit to learning a language that is hardly spoken in other parts of the world? It seems as if English would be a perfect contender for becoming a universal language. After all, it's the official language of 67 countries, and its current global reach is evident. So why is English not considered the universal language? Oh, English is a really interesting thing. Many people call it a killer language because it has traveled. It's a colonial language. So oftentimes English has gone where 
British people went, right? And then expanded from there. So you will find colonies in Africa and the Pacific, all over the place where English has traveled, but it didn't infiltrate everywhere. You probably couldn't travel to um, remote Siberia and try to speak English. You might need to speak Russian then. And Russian is also considered a dominant or killer language or, or um, yeah, colonial language. So English is not because there are places in the world it has not reached yet, um, even though it's it's often considered, a, you know, one of the leading ones, a global language, if not a universal language. Yeah. If English is unable to succeed, then the hopes of developing a singular global language in our lifetime looks bleak. Except maybe, instead of looking to the future, we look to the past. If we rewind to Poland in 1890, we might find one last contender for a universal language, Esperanto. Esperanto is this constructed language that was not made for a movie. It was made in 1897 um, by a man named L.L. Zamenhof to help promote world peace. Um, and I have a student in my classes here at UBC Okanagan who started learning Esperanto on Duolingo when he was about 14, and he is a fluent Esperanto speaker at this point. From what we've discussed, Esperanto and English have all been considered to be some sort of attempt at a universal language. We understand that many individuals aren't willing to give up their languages because of how closely related their identity and history is to it. However, what might be some reasons that individuals can benefit from having a uniform language? Yeah, so we mentioned Esperanto earlier, and so a lot of people who are trying to develop a universal language is um, to promote peace amongst people or uh, greater relationships to each other, because oftentimes conflicts occur because of miscommunication, right? People are speaking things differently, but that happens in English too. I'm sure everyone's received a text and you're like, what is this tone in this thing that's written? I can't tell what you're trying to say, or what did you mean by that, right? So there's miscommunications all the time, but there is this idea that if we have a universal language, then there'll be less miscommunication and there'll be more agreement amongst people. And that was definitely what Zamenhof was trying to do and a lot of other people to promote this idea of peace. There's also a um, sign languages often get left out of the equation when we talk about languages. And there is a language that's similar to Esperanto that was developed as an international sign language called Gestuno. And it's the same idea. So when any um, deaf individuals meet internationally, they can use this kind of created language of Justuno to help them communicate with each other. And it both of them, uh, Justuno flopped more than Esperanto did. So Justuno has now been used to help develop something called international sign, which people still use. And it's a more natural language, not a constructed one. And Esperanto has been fairly successful, but it never made that final goal of being a universal language. But it does have first language speakers. There are people who are first language speakers of Esperanto. There's uh, estimates on how many people speak Esperanto are huge, but 2.5 million are some that are more in the middle. Um, and there's a whole bunch of publications on it. It was great for people who were involved in the communist era. So people in China would share materials that were communist in nature with people in Cuba because then they didn't have to translate Chinese and Spanish or Russian. And so it helped do lots of different things. So it has been successful to some extent. Um, 
So there are benefits to it, but the people who develop those also want people to retain their own languages. Zamenhof never wanted anyone to give up their own language, but he wanted a way for everyone to, to talk to each other. So there's most people want that as well when they're developing a universal language. Now that we have weighed both sides, the overall verdict is that it's highly unlikely that we're ever going to have a universal language. And we all know and expect that human communication will continuously evolve and be extremely different from our current reality. And with the current rise of translation technologies to that of artificial intelligence, who knows what lies ahead? What do you think the future of languages will look like? If you're interested in learning more about Dr. Shire and her research, you can find her information in the description box below. Check out her blog at christineshire.ca. Thank you for listening. If you like this content, visit our blog at backofanapkin.org.